Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Hello, my name is Erin Axelrod, and I'm a partner at Lift Economy, and I'm so delighted to welcome Dow Orion to the show. Dow is the author of Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a Permaculture Approach to Ecosystem Restoration, published by Chelsea Green in 2015. And People as Purposeful and Conscientious Resource Stewards, Human Agency in a World Gone Wild, which was published in Rethinking Wilderness and the Wild. Dow consults on holistic farm, forest, and restoration planning through her company, Resilience Permaculture Design, LLC. And she holds a degree in agroecology and sustainable agriculture from UC Santa Cruz, and a degree in climate change, agriculture, and food security from the National University of Ireland. She lives with her husband, two children, an array of fruits, vegetables, seeds, nuts, and animals on her southern Willamette Valley smallholding, Veriditas Farm. Welcome, Dow, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I wanted to start for our listeners where you have this incredible vision at the end of the book that describes a world where we can absolutely meet human needs with no one left out. I wanted to start there. Could you bring our listeners into that vision for a moment? Sure. My vision for redesigning and rethinking about the ways that we engage with the world around us has to do with cultivating relationships of care and stewardship and regeneration and seeing ourselves as positive actors in our ecosystems and thinking about all of the different ways that we can enhance the benefit that we bring to an ecosystem because we are ecological actors and the modern conventional worldview or paradigm can make it seem like we're somewhat disconnected, but I think More and more, it's becoming evident that that's never been the case. Indeed, we're really connected to the world around us. And I just, I like to think about all of the ways that we can kind of re-embed ourselves in the relationships of what makes our lives possible, whether that's growing our own food or interacting with the landscape, rethinking how we harvest water or make use of water in our lives, the forest resources that make our lives possible, the plant and animal relationships that are co-existing all around us. I like to think about all of those different threads as part of the web of life that we're a part of and can be more a part of. Beautiful. So what's your story, Dow? How did you get into this work and what led you to write the book Beyond the War on Invasives? My background, as you mentioned, is in organic agriculture, and I spent many years working on organic farms and kind of learning about holistic land management and also permaculture design, kind of looking at integrated systems of waste management and water systems and everything in between from natural building, appropriate technology, all those different pieces. And I took that 
orientation into the field of ecological restoration and pretty much discovered the first day on the job where I was working as a botanist on a restoration project that the framework of the project where I was working and what I discovered later was kind of the whole way that ecosystem restoration is practiced had to do with kind of broad scale application of herbicide to manage invasive species. And as somebody that was interested in organic farming and had practiced many different ways of doing weed management, I was really surprised that restoration was so focused on eradication to the point of using Roundup and 2,4-D and other herbicides. So I really started to think about and also delve into the research around invasive species and what was really going on from an ecological perspective, because I felt like by hooking into or thinking more deeply about the ecological relationships that invasive species represent, we could come up with more creative and holistic management approaches and solutions. So let's talk about that Roundup and the herbicides that you mentioned. Where did the war on invasives, as it's called in your book, originate? Can you share that history a little bit for our our listeners? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the interesting threads of my research was really trying to identify when the herbicide paradigm came into the ecosystem restoration paradigm. And what I discovered was that there was a conscientious effort on the part of Monsanto, which is a pesticide manufacturer. The manufacturer of Roundup was one of their products, which is a glyphosate-based herbicide in the early 80s, they actually delegated an employee to sit on the board of a nascent organization in California, which was at that point called the California Exotic Pest Plant Council, and later became the California Invasive Plant Council. This person was under the employee of Monsanto throughout the duration of their tenure on the board. And in my view, helped to shape the ideology of what the focus of that body was, which was eradicating plants and seeing them as a problem to be solved through the use of herbicide, kind of similar to what approach conventional agriculture takes, right, where you see weeds and quote-unquote pests as problems that you can solve with chemicals. That ideology and framework has made it built into essentially the federal language around invasive species management in the United States and elsewhere. So it's kind of like trickled up into the way that we think about and talk about and see a lot in more conventional contexts, what invasive species are doing on the ground. And just the fact that that was such a integral part of framing the narrative I felt was important to bring forward into the conversation because I feel like so often there are like moneyed interests behind some of these pushes. And I think that's important to just scrutinize that and, and understand that there are potentially other ways to address some of the concerns that are going on with some of these plants and animals. Is there an agreed upon term of what constitutes an invasive and who defines that? 
That was another really interesting story that I found out about is that the Federal Invasive Species Council in the United States spent several years deliberating about the definition of an invasive species. And they kind of went back and forth and back and forth. At the end, they finally came up with an 11-page document that is the definition. So it's not like a very succinct thing where you can say X equals <laughs> Y plus Z. My read on it is that it was quite subjective. And a lot of it, interestingly, had to do with economic impacts of invasive species. And it was framed in a way that made it seem like the species of concern were really ones that affected what we consider the kind of normal or conventional way of doing business. So species that pop up in rangelands and affect cattle forage or species that pop up after clear cuts and affect the ability of timber corporations to do business easily in terms of coming in and replanting species that come into agricultural situations after tillage and interfere with easy planting of the next cash crop. So the fact that many of these species are considered bad because they affect economic outcomes, I think is also important to consider when we're kind of looking at it from this bigger picture perspective, because we really need to be thinking about or trying to take kind of an objective view and understanding what some of these species are doing from an ecological perspective, because again, that can kind of help inform the steps that we take to engage with the landscapes where they're thriving. Because I don't necessarily believe that we should just kind of let everything be. I think that in many ways, invasive species are kind of showing us the result of maybe years, decades of mismanagement. And if we want to have different types of ecological outcomes, which I think most people do when they see an invasive species or those folks that are involved in ecological restoration, they really want to promote native plants and animals. And that's great, but we really need to be looking at what happened in the in the interim to get from a landscape that supported native plants and animals to one that doesn't support them any longer. And when we start to tell those stories, that's where we get this really kind of rich body of information that can hopefully encourage us to be better stewards in a deep way. Just to be clear, this 11-page document that defines invasives, it's put out by the USDA or... It's the National Invasive Species Council. Interesting. Okay. So I'd love to hear your perspective on what do you feel has been the implications of this war on invasives from the standpoint of how it's affected communities, particularly those that have been most marginalized by our quote-unquote economic system? Yeah, I mean, I think a big piece of this that I really have tried to bring to light in many restoration contexts is the disenfranchisement and dispossession of land and management of indigenous people, especially in North America, where 
fire-based management, for example, was widely practiced by many indigenous people throughout North America. Moving those people, taking their land away and taking that type of management off of land and replacing it with grazing animals like cows and sheep, pigs, all of the different hydrological changes that have happened in terms of like damming rivers and draining wetlands and all of this, all of those actions have huge ramifications for an ecosystem. And I think that there's kind of a fundamental lack of understanding, which I think has changed a little bit over the past few years, but just how much Indigenous people were engaged in a conscientious shaping of ecological characteristics and by displacing them and taking their land and dispossessing them of their lifeways, there are major pieces of the ecological puzzle, if you will, that we're dealing with now, one of which is the proliferation of invasive species. And I really think that having a critical eye on some of those historic decisions and their ongoing ramifications, like the fact that colonization didn't stop once it was initiated several centuries ago, it's still ongoing in the form of land dispossession and lifeway dispossession. And that I think is a fundamental issue with restoration and largely who practices what's called restoration, which is largely conceived of a way of putting all the native plants and animals back where they should be and leaving people out. And that's not an expression of historic ecological accuracy. There were never ecosystems that didn't have people in them. And it's a kind of myth that is part of a colonial legacy of understanding land and this idea of pristine nature that I think really needs to be fundamentally questioned and changed and bringing indigenous knowledge and practice back into the forefront of ecological engagement, I think is critical to this work. So that's something that I think kind of underlies all of this. So in a couple of words, you're kind of saying that it's not the species that's the invader, right? The, the problem is not with the invasive species, it's with the whole context of white supremacy and colonization and land dispossession. And that's creating these conditions for the term opportunistic species or, yeah, can you say a little bit more about that? The way that I kind of think about it, I call it forensic ecology. Like when you're looking at a landscape, if you really have to wind back in time, the things that have occurred with that land and a fundamental to that understanding is knowing the indigenous management history, the people who lived here, how and live here still and how they managed land, how that was and when that management stopped. So in Oregon, where I live, indigenous burning was made illegal in 1859. And by that point, most of the remaining indigenous people had been moved to the reservations in Siletz and Grand Ronde on the west side of Oregon. So their management practices that had taken place over that entire 
portion of land west of the Cascades and also east of the Cascades. It was kind of similar management practices that also stopped then. And that included burning. And so now on the West Coast, especially, we're really seeing these widespread and huge fires that are the result of a century plus of fire suppression and fuels build up. And the tragedy there has to do with climate change and historic drought and lack of rainfall and snowpack. But it also has to do with that lack of indigenous management, which was utilizing low intensity fire on a regular basis to mitigate lower growing vegetation. Not everywhere, always, all at once, there was kind of a patchwork mosaic of different types of species that were burned for different purposes at different times to stimulate the production of fruit or to stimulate the production of long, straight twigs for weaving baskets, things like that. You know, it was a very sophisticated perennial management system that, for the most part, was completely destroyed by colonization. And starting to see the land from that angle and to understand the scope of cultivation that is part of these indigenous land management practices, it's a big switch, I think, in worldview from seeing plants as quote-unquote wildflowers, like people like to talk about wildflowers. Well, to me, they're not wild. They are the result of careful cultivation, and that cultivation isn't happening anymore. And one of the results of that lack of cultivation and careful stewardship, not for sale, you know, again, this is like a non-capitalist approach to land management, which is kind of a whole other thread of the conversation, but to cultivate these species for subsistence, taking that management away means that they're less likely to thrive and other species are going to come in when that cultivation goes away. And so in most of the invasive species that we're seeing, you can kind of think about them as just fitting right into that lack of management. There's a big hole there. And we, the white supremacy, that the colonization, that whole way that land was conceived of and separated, you know, this is wild and this is natural and this is a city and this is a, you know, this is a dump, etc. That whole framework left that big hole for that kind of consistent, conscientious engagement with landscapes that weren't considered farms or weren't considered timberlands. It's just a different kind of way of seeing land. That's, I think, the fundamental difference. You describe in your book that the the consequence of eradicating the plant species that come into that gap or that void, if you will, is to the tune of the federal government allocating $1 billion annually, probably more now, to research and control invasive species. And nearly half of that is actually spent in pesticide applications. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit more about 
the economic implications of these mindsets and paradigms on our communities, you know, how much we're spending in this so-called war. You know, just the the idea that we need to get back to some state of normalcy and that we're going to expend all of these resources, mostly in the form of chemical control, is kind of this ill-founded concept. And it's going to continue to cost more and more money because what we're not seeing is that there's ecological processes at work. And you can spray all the herbicide you want on plant populations, but if you're not addressing the fundamental processes that are underlying that ability of those plants to fit into that ecosystem, it's money poorly spent because you're just going to keep coming back to it and back to it. And that's one of the problems what we were talking about with Monsanto and other herbicide manufacturers being in on this conversation about what ecosystem restoration means is because it's their financial interest to keep selling these products. And so they're not really looking at the systemic factors that might lead to transforming an ecosystem to a point where it's not having invasive species anymore. They want to just keep selling that again and again and again, the pesticide treadmill, which I think most people are familiar with that concept from agriculture, where you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then, you know, eventually with insects, especially it doesn't work anymore. And then you need to use another type of product. And that type of ideology that we're kind of in this war and we just need to keep putting more and more resources towards that style of engagement when the real fundamental issue is like a necessity to reevaluate how we relate to ecosystems, I think is a really unfortunate avenue that ecological restoration of all the different things that people are doing to try to, you know, make a better home for all of us that in particular, I, th- I feel like we should be rethinking how we engage with that and rethinking how we spend that money that's being put towards this kind of noble goal. But it's kind of like, I don't think that the ends justify the means. And we could instead be reinvesting that money into doing very different types of activities like funding indigenous leadership to engage with traditional skills and their traditional lands. Instead of spending more money to Monsanto, like let's redirect it into something a little bit more or a lot more regenerative and socially and economically integrated and much more meaningful socially and ecologically over the long term. I'd love to get into some of the work you've done and if you can bring forward any case stories of partnerships with plants that you have cultivated where you saw kind of they were going down the direction of using the pesticides or herbicides and there was an opportunity to shift that and try something new and, and what the results were on both communities and economics and the plant ecotones that were affected. Sure. Well, the job that I mentioned that I had gotten that kind of stimulated my interest in this topic, basically after that 
first day when I learned that there was a lot of herbicide being used and part of my job was going to be continuing to apply it, I pretty much said, you know what, I'm sorry, maybe this was a misunderstanding, but I would really prefer not to do this. However, if you want to keep me on, I'd be happy to come up with some creative solutions to manage this site without using herbicide. And it kind of went up the chain of command, the hierarchy of the county government that I was working for. And they decided to do a test pilot project. And what we ended up doing was kind of allocating some of that funding to hiring a local youth crew from an alternative high school that has a conservation corps. And they came out once a week and worked with us. There's a crew of eight to 10 high school age kids. And for over the course of a year, we really got a lot of work done on the site. And we were managing mostly false dandelion and rat tail fescue and some pennyroyal, which are common in this wetland type environment. And just by having that number of people out on the ground, and in this case, the kids were getting paid, they were getting high school credit, they were learning skills and engaged out on the the land in their local ecosystem and having fun. There was so much more richness to that engagement and that project's ongoing. They're still out there six years later and it's kind of built into their curriculum now that they go out to this site and continue to work there. They, they do planting now. They do some weeding still. They're not applying herbicide. And that was kind of my thing. And I think the school administrators agreed that that's not a good idea for young people to do. So we just looked for all these different ways that we could engage differently and make it into a more enriching experience. So that was cool. And, you know, I think that the success of that project, ecologically, it worked out and they've been able to successfully manage that 64 acres by hand with having this crew come out there regularly. And then it has all of these kind of ripple effects throughout the wider social ecology of the site and the, the students and the, you know, the families and it has these kind of other benefits that came along with it. You talk about in your book, large scale eradication projects of, you know, salt cedar in the Colorado River, 80 million here to eradicate salt cedar that is really there because we've completely disrupted the hydrology. Are there other examples, maybe ones that you read about in your research or discovered in your research that are actually like, what could we do instead of spending that money? You know, similar to what you just shared around the 64 acres, but other examples that you came across in your research from other parts of the country? Well, one thing I think about a lot where I live is just the the timber industry and it's focus on scotch broom as an invasive species and kind of the wide scale eradication that they engage in. And it's kind of an interesting story because the type of management that's widely practiced here in Western Oregon is clear cutting. So, you know, up to 160 acres can be cut 
all at once. The soil is left bare and exposed to the sun and the rain. And the species that comes in, scotch broom, is a super hardy, drought-tolerant, nitrogen-fixing shrub that, if left to grow, would actually be seen from another perspective beneficial because it's actually enriching the soil and making it more possible for other types of plants to grow there. However, a lot of money, energy, time, herbicide (laughs) is spent in attempting to remove this plant year after year after year after year. And I really think that there could be, and I've seen some folks are starting to do this on different scales of projects, but seeing it more as a resource for compost making or biochar creation, where you're actually making use of that species instead of just trying to remove it at all costs and just considering it trash that you could never engage with again. I know there's some other folks doing some really good work with kudzu, which is another invasive nitrogen fixer, but it grows more in the southeastern United States. It actually makes a really nice fiber that you can make cloth out of. You can also use the root as kind of like an arrowroot powder, like to make sauces and candies and things like that. It has all of these different uses that could come out of managing the plant and managing the overall ecosystem towards more desirable characteristics, whether that's timber operation or a food forest or native plant-based ecosystem again. And again, one thing you talk about in your book is that a lot of the times when we're using the term invasive, and I'd love to hear your ideas of other words to sub in to help actually change the narrative as we're living into this next economy. How do we change the narrative just in our very vernacular But a lot of times, as you mentioned in your book, the ecosystem that we're trying to return to is a myopic slice of time and doesn't really encompass the more holistic and truer version of the story, which is that people have been transporting plant and animal material across land bases since time immemorial. Could you talk a little bit about that history as well? Sure. Yeah, that was a really interesting line of research, too, where there's kind of this idea of when Columbus came over to the Americas, that was the beginning of the so-called Columbian biological exchange, where more and more plants and animals started to move throughout the world. And there was definitely more happening since that particular inflection point. But When you kind of look a little bit deeper at that narrative, it becomes clear that people were engaging in long distance exchanges of plants and animals long before Columbus came from Spain and arrived in Cuba. There was trans-Pacific movement of people and the materials that they needed for their livelihoods, both plant and animal that are well-documented from Polynesia, even coming into South America, also from Africa over to North and South America. So the idea of nativeness being from a particular time when taking that into account is a, is a little more 
fuzzy. However, I think that it's important to also say that many native plants and animals have a, a really important cultural value for indigenous people. And I think that they have that importance is critical to kind of value as well. So I'm not saying like we should just like mix everything up and it'll be totally fine. I think that it's, there is value in enhancing the biological productivity of native plants and animals and the ecosystems that they thrive in. I think another thing that is kind of being overlaid on that now as we contend with the increasing effects of climate change is how plant and animal communities are also moving in response to that. So the way that I kind of talk about this sometimes is like there's a lot of layers to this onion. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's just one thing or a linear answer. There's a lot of different threads to the web to consider when you're making decisions. But climate change and adaptive or assisted migration piece of thinking about where species are likely to survive in the future and pre-planning that now is also an important part of this conversation. Thank you so much for mentioning how nuanced and complex this is. I really appreciate that about your work. And another thing I appreciate about your work is I gather that you seek to be as connected to your material and food culture as possible, and that that is a really important stand for the flourishing of Native ecosystems around you, because it means if you're responsible for growing a portion of your own food, it means you're not authorizing the degradation of Native ecosystems elsewhere by endorsing even an organic monocrop tillage, you know, farmstead that could be disrupting ecosystems elsewhere. So could you talk a little bit more about that and, and kind of how you hold that conversation? You know, that's such an important piece of this conversation as well, because I think in some conversations I've been in, there's this focus on, oh, well, let's plant native plants in our yards, and that'll be helpful for pollinators and enhancing their populations, which I definitely agree with. However, what that also means is that you're probably just going to be going to the store and buying food that's grown in a native ecosystem that's been disrupted in the name of agriculture. And so both of those things need to be examined a little bit and kind of a question of, can we produce at least some of our food in the context of also planting back and enhancing native plant systems, you know, either in our yards or in our neighborhoods, local communities. What does that balance look like? I know several years ago, it kind of struck me this whole idea because I was traveling through southeastern California around just east of Santa Barbara, I went to visit Quail Springs, which is kind of a permaculture village site. And that whole area around that site is dedicated to carrot production. Some of it is organic carrot production. And it's literally an ecological desert. And what was a kind of a highly biodiverse area now is 
actually desertified and they have thousand foot deep wells. They're taking this really deep old aquifer water out and spraying it up into the air. And it's just untenable. And it's unfortunate that the pursuit of efficiency in agriculture has led to that scale of ecological disruption. And I think, as we know, we're, we're faced with a series of really difficult questions right now when it comes to climate change and livelihood and biodiversity preservation and ideally enhancement. Like, how are we going to put those things together? Because we're coming to a point where the consequences for the way that we've designed our livelihood systems are coming to pass and will become increasingly more and more visible. And we're, we need to be drawing those relationships closer in to where we live. And one of the things I like to talk about is important is it's not all about us. You know, these design systems aren't just human based. We should really be thinking about how we're providing for all of the other species that inhabit this place and making sure that at least a portion of what we do, what we grow, how we're, you know, the time that we spend in the landscape is for them. And so, you know, it's not like a hard and fast, like, oh, 50% of your land should be this or that, but really designing with all of the creatures, including our, us in mind, I think is important. Thank you for bringing that awareness. Like sometimes the mainstream narrative of going to the grocery store and such a benign choice to purchase a, a bunch of carrots. And really when you, when you dig into it, it becomes more complex which products are good and which products are bad <laughs> if we get into those binaries. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your Resilient Design LLC and what you're doing right now and anything you'd like to share around how you work with clients. Sure. Yeah. I mostly do kind of larger scale forestry, agroforestry, regenerative agriculture, and water system planning. And it kind of goes on many different scales, I guess. But one of the things that we're really looking at is how to balance and increase the biodiversity piece that we're talking about in the context of making it possible for people to still thoughtfully steward land in an economic way. And trying to kind of chart a middle path, I guess, between what is all too common, at least around where we live, which is a pretty large scale exploitation of ecosystems in the form of timber extraction and creating systems that allow for the forest ecosystem to still thrive while being able to do sensitive harvesting, selective harvesting, incorporation of non-timber forest products, potentially, you know, regenerative grazing systems and water harvesting systems that help to restore watersheds and stream flow and things like that. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing that work. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up fire in the beginning too and how the legacy of 
displacing the cultural burning practices and displacing the indigenous people who who knew how to steward this land in a fire adapted landscape. I'm curious just because I know fires on so many people's mind, especially in the in the West. How does your design consultation work interface in actually building fire resilience, whether that be through rehydrating soils and instilling different plant ecologies that can keep soil moisture in the ground, that can reduce the severity of fires, or do you dabble in in that at all? Yeah, definitely. That's something that we work with a lot of people on is, you know, the fire sector and conversation is kind of a big thread that we are just kind of basing most of our thought processes around. And, you know, in some cases that looks like preparing sites to be ready to receive fire again, because fire is natural in this environment and it is also cultural. It was, you know, a practice that created an ecosystem and the plants here. But because of the buildup of fuels over the last century or so, putting fire back on the land in many cases would result in a more catastrophic event. So in a lot of places, doing fuel loads reduction and and thinning and, and making a plan to do prescribed fire at the right time is something that we're involved with. And I think more and more that's going to become popular and more practiced in especially the Western U.S. And in many cases, it's tribally led. Like I know the Yurok tribe in Northern California has a a fire crew and they're starting, they manage their own lands down there, but they also do trainings and there's now a fire crew in Grand Ronde, which is one of the reservations here in Oregon. And so building up that capacity to do that tribal led prescribed fire is really exciting. But in many cases, there's several steps to get to a point where that's going to be a safe and good idea again. And so we definitely help people who are interested in going that route to get ready for that. And yeah, just kind of thinking about how to gently move landscapes and oftentimes, you know, houses, residences, like places where people have invested a lot in of time and money into a place are often in a very precarious situation firewise. So helping make decisions that kind of move potentially dangerous trees or things away from dwellings, but in an ecologically sensitive way, whether that means replanting in other areas or putting more fire adapted or fire resilient landscapes immediately around the house to provide for pollinators or food crops or things like that. Dow, thank you so much. As we close our conversation, I just want to say I'm so grateful for the work you do. And, you know, I'm really curious. I'm sure our listeners would be really curious, not only how they could help support you and your work in growing the movement that you've been a part of, but also some of the comments you made around Indigenous communities leadership. Are there ways that our listeners can support Indigenous leadership to bring back cultural burn practices or or things like that? So what are some thoughts that come to mind around how our listeners can support the movements that you're a part of led by Indigenous 
tribes to reclaim a healthier balance around humans' participation in ecosystem health? I would definitely check out the Yurok Cultural Fire Management Council. It's a really great resource, and they're kind of leading the way in terms of doing a lot of these trainings and especially focusing on building up the capacity of other tribes throughout California, Oregon, Washington, but also throughout the country and even worldwide, from what I understand. So they are a nonprofit and definitely worth checking out both for trainings if you're interested in learning more and doing more prescribed fire or being part of that type of practice or also just supporting financially. That would be a great place to start. You know, I always like to encourage people just to do some research about the land that you live on and inhabit and find out what the history of colonization has been there and try to find out if there are ways that you can contribute financially to organizations that are involved with tribal communities in your area, you know, either financially or in person, depending on what opportunities might be available. Thank you, Dow. And for folks in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's Segura Te Land Trust, which has an opportunity to contribute to a Shumi land tax, which is really highly encouraged to help Indigenous communities get access to land back and get, get ownership and stewardship again of stolen lands. And yeah, those are two really, really great places for people to dive in and we didn't get to talk about evapotranspiration through plants and the cloud seeding bacteria and all these other amazing things that you cover in your book. So I really encourage folks to check out that book, Beyond the War on Invasives. But is there anything else you'd love to leave our listeners with in closing? Actually, I did start recently a new initiative that is just a bi-monthly meeting. So every two weeks we meet over Zoom. It's called the Regenerative Ecology Alliance. And if anybody wants to come drop in and chat, we have different themes every meeting. And that's kind of a nice way to network and meet other people who are doing this kind of work or who are wanting to learn more about it and maybe meet others. Amazing. We'll definitely link to that. Well, thank you once again. Thanks so much for your efforts in this in this realm and for sharing your knowledge so beautifully. And thanks for, for sharing your time with us on, on Next Economy Now. Thank you for having me. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.